Father, we pray that you will speak to your people this morning through the written and proclaimed word of God preserved down through the ages for our edification, even for this very day, for this service and for these hearts who are present before you this morning. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Sit down. All right. Um, we're going to open to Romans 9 again. Uh, it's taken a while to get through this chapter. I, I don't know how long we've been in it. I haven't checked. It's been a number of weeks. But it's a very important chapter. And if you've noticed, the apostle does something that's, that makes the preaching of the book of Romans as a series a very productive and edifying thing. And that is, he brings in so much of the Old Testament that we get a really fully orbed view of God's purposes from beginning to end when we go into the book of Romans. Uh, he does that all through his epistles, but nowhere like in the book of Romans. And uh, in Romans chapter 9, he just makes so many references to um, Old Testament scriptures, which for them were the scriptures. You follow me? Um, not every Christian in that time would have received this letter. Certainly those in Rome who gathered together would have heard it read and proclaimed in some morning service or several services, perhaps. Because even then, the church was filled with many Gentiles who may not have had complete understanding of Old Testament promises. They knew the New Testament promises in the Gospel were extensions of that but maybe weren't aware of some of the details. And I dare say that there's a lot of Christians today whose understanding of the Old Testament is scanty at best. And um, we really need to, um, to change that. There was a time in Christendom, which is the Western world, right? No one says Christendom anymore, do they? But there was a time when you could make an allusion to really any obscure Old Testament event, and everyone would know what you were talking about. But you don't do that so readily today. Um, it's what I call the myth of progress. You know, remember when cars and dishwashers and garbage disposals were supposed to give us more time? Remember, remember that? That was the whole point of machines, that you would have more time to do other things. But I think what we do is we spend our time online buying the best one and then fixing it because it really wasn't the best one. And uh, it seems to me the myth of progress is what I call it. It's, uh, I'm sure it's called that by someone else, but um, it seems we don't have time to do the things that are necessary, the most important things. And I ask that we at least, as Christians, change that in our lives. Because I think, as Jesus said, you, um, you know when the sky is red that it's going to rain, but you don't know the signs of the times, and you didn't know the time of your visitation when the Messiah came. Friends, look at the signs of the times. It's time to be immersed in the Word of God, so that when our hour comes, we will have complete confidence of who we are, what we must do, what we must suffer, and where we must go. Amen? Amen. Amen. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast wrought perfect praise. Hallelujah. All right, so I love to do a little King James once in a while. Have you notice that? Um, so let's turn to Romans chapter 9. And uh, we'll be rounding around the end of this. 
And what Paul is doing here is he's returning to some of the themes he started at the beginning of chapter 9. If you remember, all through chapter 8, he talked about predestination, election, right? All things work together for good. For who? Sons of Abraham. No, for those who love God, whether they're sons of Abraham or not. They could have been sons of Tom, Dick, and Harry. But if they have faith, they are sons of God. You know, that was blasphemy to Jews. They didn't understand. They didn't understand. They missed their own heritage, their own understanding. And I dare say, so did Saul of Tarsus. That was the doppelganger of Paul the Apostle, right? You know what I mean, doppelganger? No, that's because we're Americans. We only speak one language. But um, that's German, right, Tom? Yeah, Tom's an expert in German. It's the alter ego, the doppelganger, it's called in literature. But um, even Paul the Apostle would have had to learn these things. They weren't as obvious as they, sh- as they should have been. And the Apostle is making it known now, these things were always true. You shouldn't be surprised, Jew, that your Gentile neighbor is in the same pew with you. If they had pews, I don't know. But what he's doing is he's going back, he's showing, yes, those of us who love God are elect of God. And it seems like the promises didn't extend to the Jews and that God broke his promise to them. But he's showing them, no, he's kept it scrupulously to the elect down through the ages. And some were from Israel and some were not. And he's culminating that argument here at the end of chapter 9. And so I thought for our inspection this morning, we would look at verses 22 through 33. That takes us to the end of the chapter. I'm not saying we will cover all of those verses this morning, but it will give us a context and understanding where the apostle would direct our thinking. And so from verse 22 we read, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, And that he might make known the riches of of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? 
because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay a stumbling stone, or rather, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. O Father, in Jesus' name, open to us the deep meaning of this, your holy word, this morning. Amen. So that's quite a passage. And I think we can see what the Apostle's doing here. So let's begin with this, verses 25 and 26. I'm very interested in this concept of, I'll call them my people who were not my people. And so he says, in Hosea, Paul writes, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I'll call her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. I'm going to ask you this morning, for those of you who are really careful in your reading, is that what Hosea said? I'm going to get into that later. It is not a direct quote from Hosea. The apostle is embellishing an ancient prophecy. And it has come up for criticism as to whether or not it is his prerogative to do so. So, I'll give you that to whet your appetite for the rest of the message this morning. So, we've dealt with the apostle's major argument of the section. He's careful to point out with scriptural proofs that God's purposes from beginning to end were the same. So, he's speaking to the Jews in the congregation about the Gentiles who maybe weren't receiving a very hospitable welcome from their Jewish brethren. Right? I mean, the Jews had grown up knowing the Messiah would come out of them, knowing that they are covenant sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, followers of Moses and the law. They had all these benefits, all of these special dispensations given to them from above. None of the other nations had this. And suddenly... The gospel of Christ, the salvation of God, is open to the Gentile world, which, quite frankly, they despised. But he's careful to use scriptural proofs. He's saying, I'm preaching to my own people here. And as we know from the beginning of the chapter, he loves the Jews. He loves being a Jew. He's lamenting that so few of them have come to Christ by faith. And so he's trying to explain how... God has been faithful to them in what he said, but you have to go back and make sure you know what he said in order to understand this. And if you're going to speak to Jews, how would you do it? You'd use the scriptures. That's the powerful way. The purpose of God, according to election, was revealed throughout the whole of the Old Testament narratives. It was established by covenant. For purposes of his own, however, God rejected some and received others. What, how did he say it here? Let's, let's go into the... Um, he said, Isaiah wrote, Unless the Lord of Sabaoth... By the way, that's a totally different word than Sabbath. I want you to know that. It means the Lord of armies. The Lord of hosts. A different root word and everything. The Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed. Unless he had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have been made like Gomorrah that were totally destroyed. Right? I mean, one, Lot came out of Sodom, but the rest were totally destroyed. 
unless he left us a seed. This is this whole doctrine of the remnant. You know, people say to me, but God so loved the world. How could he hold some accountable and some not? And I say to you, God always loved the world. God loved the world in Noah's time. And he fixed it by saving eight. And he fixed, fixed it in Sodom's time by saving one. So he left us a seed. The seed is very much like the remnant, which, again, we'll get into as we go into this. For purposes of his own, God rejected some but received others, and he wants to show them it was always the case. He said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called, verse 7 of the chapter. In other words, friends, promise trumps progeny. God's promise trumps your parentage or your progeny. And friends, this is, should be nothing new to people who've studied the gospel. It's one of the first things John the Baptist warned the Pharisees of. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He's saying to Christian, to Jewish brothers, who warned you to free, to flee the wrath to come? He says to them, do not think to say to me, we have Abraham as our father, because God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones, which thankfully he did. Jesus said the same thing. This is not new stuff. And it seems the prophets knew it. John the Baptist, the last great prophet of the Old Testament tradition, he knew that it was by faith in Christ, the Messiah who was to come. Not just by your scanty pretense of following scrupulously the law of God. And so promise trumps a progeny. God's promise is more powerful than your birthright. Ishmael was Abraham's son of the flesh. He was born of Abraham and the bondwoman Hagar. I hope we all know this history. But Ishmael was rejected as a covenant partner of God, and it says so here. It says so in Genesis, and Paul pointed that out. You see, all the way through here, the way he's arguing election is by tying it to the Old Testament promise and the events that happened. But the so-called son of promise was Isaac whose birth was yet afar off, some 14 years off, um, and Isaac would bear the seed of faith. When I say 14 years off, what I mean is Sarah and Abraham conceived a plan to have a child through the bondwoman. The child was 14 when the son of promise came on the scene. The father was in love with the son. Abraham loved Ishmael, and Ishmael was a good son by all accounts. But the promise went to Isaac for reasons of God, if you ask me why, I'll, I'll have to plead ignorance. I don't know why. God didn't tell me why. He didn't tell anybody why, but he told us that's what he did. You know, part of having a faith is to accept things that God said directly from God and not making your own judgments on them. But anticipating an objection that perhaps Ismail was rejected because he wasn't the son of Sarah... Paul goes on to another Old Testament illustration to illustrate this even further. Jacob was chosen over Esau. And they were both blood sons of um, Isaac and Rebekah and blood sons through Abraham and Sarah. So they were the perfect progeny. Why weren't both chosen? We don't know. Again, I have to tell you, he hasn't revealed that to me. But even in her womb, God spoke directly to Rebecca, Genesis 25:23, when he said, two nations are in your womb. There's a clue as to what some of his 
plan is. Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. God went on to say that the older shall serve the younger long before they were born. In other words, he knew the birth order. He knew who would be born first and second. And he completely reversed that to throw the law of Israel on its head. Because the firstborn in Israel was the executor of the will. He was the one that got the double portion of the inheritance. And God said, no, I'm turning that on its head. The older shall serve the younger, he said, before they were born. And so Paul reminds these Roman readers of this very thing. And so he quotes, or rather he writes, For the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And then he doubles down on the prophecy of Malachi, and he quotes, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Can't be plainer than that. From this point, he goes on to refer to Exodus. He comes out of Genesis and he makes the point from Exodus. You should have understood this from the beginning in Abraham's time and you should have understood this in Moses' time. And he refers to the very famous hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And remember this in your evangelism, what he says here to Moses. God says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand to do, but I will harden his heart so that he'll not let the people go. You see, God isn't always looking for success. He's not always looking for a return. God glories in the fact that he's proclaimed. He wanted Moses to proclaim the great God of the universe, to the man who was worshipped as a god in the earth. And so Paul defends God's actions by the famous Old Testament illustration of the potter's authority over the clay. We went into this in the last couple of weeks. Jeremiah used the illustration. Isaiah used it. Uh, Even Ezekiel uh, um, refers to it. But Jeremiah used the illustration to show the power of God over the purposes of man. And so he said this. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and one for dishonor? It's pretty self-explanatory. Man, fallen humanity is the lump, and God is the potter, working it into whichever use he desires. And so Paul doubles down on these Old Testament illustrations. And so all these Old Testament allusions are for purposes of demonstrating two immutable divine directives. One, God is sovereign in all things. And two, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Even Jesus, when he preached to the Jews, and they took up stones to stone him, he insulted them when he reminded them what the Old Testament said. He said, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah the prophet, but he only went to one, a widow of Zarephath, which is Lebanon, right? Ancient Phoenicia. He said there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Naaman the Syrian, but God only went to one. Or in the time of Elisha the prophet, but God only went to one, Naaman of Syria. He's telling them God has always blessed the Outsider, the unbeliever, the Gentile, the pagan. He's always, for his own purposes, used his power to convert the ungodly. He's always done it. 
Nothing new. With regard to who will partake of the covenant and who will not, all things are entirely in the potter's hand. And no one but he will have the power to amend that reality. It will always be the case. And yet Paul offers a third point in the discussion, which brings us to this new subsection of the text of Romans 9. What Paul began the chapter lamenting is that Israel, throughout their generations, were seen and believed themselves to be the chosen people. And they were. I don't take away that moniker from them. That's who they were. God says it many times. Out of all the nations of the earth, I chose you. Not because you were more in number than the other nations. Not because you were stronger. In fact, he says, you're a foolish nation. Many times he said to them. But I chose you to be my special emissary and to carry the word of God to the world. So they were the chosen people, but... What the New Testament reveals is that was in a preliminary, symbolic sense, like so many things in the Old Testament. They were there to become God's object lesson for the ages, to point the path to God. Did you ever notice how God uses the prophets' lives as an object lesson? He told Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. He's living through this prophecy. He's living through what Paul will eventually elucidate for us centuries later. Go down to the potter's house and note the potter's in charge of the clay. You remember what he did to Ezekiel? Anyone? He gave him the scroll. Ezekiel chapter 3 said, eat the scroll. He said, son of man, he called Ezekiel, eat the scroll. And Ezekiel had to take the word of God and literally eat it in some sort of vision or trance, I would imagine, And he even commented on how good it tasted, like honey. I imagine it probably tasted like manna. Didn't manna taste like honey-flavored porridge or something? And he's going to do the same thing with Hosea. Lloyd-Jones pointed out that he did that with the Lamb of God, which I always talk about. The Lamb of God, that, that actual lamb that was sacrificed. Its bones weren't broken. It was the firstborn male of its mother, right? The blood would be taken, and it would be shown for a sacrifice, a payment of your sins, and your sins would be atoned for. And then Jesus comes, and he's the actual Lamb of God. All of these things are symbolic. And as he said to the, to the Colossians, these are symbolic, but the substance is Christ. And so the apostle lamented the scant reception of the Messiah among his own people. And he wrote at the outset of this chapter, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, all out of the Jews, who was over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And so what we've seen thus far in the chapter is this. Paul is making the case that for purposes, that God's purposes, rather, in election were announced and revealed from the very beginning and carried through. Secondly, he's making the case that no Pharisee, 
no scholar, no scribe, no teacher of the law should have been surprised that the covenant never pertained merely to the blood progeny of Abraham. That's his other point. He laments that they did not see what was clearly put in front of them. He deftly uses the text of their own scriptures to illustrate how obvious was God's purpose in election. And so he continues to use this method to convince them of this truth. And friends, this Romans chapter 9 is the place in scripture where Paul really teaches this doctrine. That's why we linger here so long. So again, he goes to Isaiah, the 750s B.C. or thereabouts. Isaiah writes, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Remember the promise to Abraham? Your children will be numbered as the sands of the sea, as the stars in the heaven. And Isaiah says, yes, God was faithful. Your children are numbered as the sands of the sea, but only the remnant of them will be saved. They should have seen that. Whatever remnant means, it doesn't mean the whole, right? And so we encounter this doctrine of the remnant. Those who remain faithful to God and who recognize the Son of God are the remnant. Lot was part of the remnant, right? The Greek word for remnant is hupoleima. Some manuscripts, the one I was using, had it as kataleima. Both mean the same thing. Which means the part from the whole. That's what remnant means. A direct quotation from the lexicon is where the contrast is drawn between the number of Israel as a whole and the smaller number in it of those who are saved through the gospel. It's from the word leima, which means that which is left. In any case, friends, the word remnant refers to faithful Israel, not the entire nation. You see, the ones who stood for the worship of the one true God in hard times, the ones who are here referred as those who came to Christ. There's always this sifting. There's always this sifting. Do you remember after the time of David, 40 years of peace and prosperity in the land, enemies were at bay, not conquered, but at bay, and then Solomon Inherited all that peace and all that wealth and all that wisdom God gave him. And so for 80 years, they were a great nation. And right after Solomon died, they began fighting over the power of Israel. And his son Rehoboam took one section called Judah and the so-called ten tribes, sometimes referred to, sometimes referred to as Israel or Ephraim, because Ephraim was the biggest part of the northern They were two separate countries with two separate kings. That's what the books of the kings is all about. Two separate countries with two separate kings. And so right away, Jeroboam, the king of Israel, what does he do? Well, he makes worship more convenient. And he sets up little shrines around the nation. And what does he use as the sign of God? Golden calf. What else? God is sifting to see who will really worship that, that idol of Baal. Right? Who will really worship it? And so I remember the first time I came into contact with this concept of the remnant. It was in 1 Kings 19. 
Elijah had just finished the, the, the great contest at Mount Carmel, remember? 450 prophets of Baal couldn't get a spark to light. And Elijah came in and he dampened down with barrels and barrels of water on his wood pile there and had a trench around it and put water in the trench. Everything he could do to quench a fire, call down God and God sent the fire and burnt it up. You remember that? He even licked the water out of the trench, the Bible says. And so he showed that God was God. And that day, 450 prophets were executed by the river Kidron, I believe. And uh, that day, Jezebel, the evil queen, right, said, I will make Elijah like them by tomorrow. Now, this always... Kind of bothered me a little that Elijah ran away. I mean, he just called down the power of God, and this witch tells him she's going to kill him, and he runs away. But the prophet must know when God's going to release his protective power and when he's not, so he ran away. And he went far away into the wilderness. And he crawls into a cave, and he cries out to God. And this is what he says. He said, Lord, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Now, he's talking about that northern kingdom, right? Under Jeroboam, the calf worshiper. You think they would have read Exodus and found out that the Lord didn't like that. He says, the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars all throughout Israel, torn down any worship place For God, the true God, they killed your prophets with the sword. And he says, I alone am left and they seek my life. In other words, he's saying, I am the remnant. From his own finite perspective, he thought he was the last man of God in existence. And they were trying to kill him. And he ran to save the promise of God by keeping himself alive. And then God very famously said, I remember the first time I read this, I rejoiced. The Lord said, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed them. In other words, the Lord had 7,000 reserved out of the millions of Israel, friends. 7,000. He's talking about are faithful. These are not good ratios. The remnant is not so different from the seed. In some ways, I suppose, are the same thing. The remnant's the 7,000. If there was no 7,000, then Elijah would be the remnant, which you could call the seed, right? Those from whom the whole crop may grow and blossom and produce. That's what the remnant is. Now, in order that we can see what Paul's teaching by this quotation from Hosea, we should look into the book and the ministry life of Hosea who was a contemporary of some of the other great prophets. Hosea spoke to the northern kingdom. That was his ministry territory. Isaiah under Hezekiah was in the south, in Judah. All right. Amos and Micah sort of switched between the two. And so Hosea ministered to the northern kingdom during the time of the rebellion under Jeroboam. All right. We may remember, if you go through the books of the kings, the stories are not... I don't know if it's right to say they're not chronological, but it it transfers from Israel's king to Judah's king. It's a little sometimes hard to know where you are, but pay attention when you read it. But in the end, there are 19 kings in the northern kingdom 
um, and something like eight or nine dynasties. In other words, some of the kings became kings by killing the, the former king, which that doesn't go in, the, in, in Israel. So 19 of the northern kingdoms, none of them followed the Lord. By contrast, in the southern kingdom of Judah, there were 20 kings and all but eight of them went after pagan gods. Those aren't great odds, but Judah is, relatively speaking, a more honorable um, follower of the one true God. Now, why are these facts of Hosea's ministry important for our treatment of the text? Well, here are two factors that, that I would point out. The first is, the kingdom of Israel was an idolatrous nation, friends. It was wholly sold out to other gods, except for those 7,000, no one knows who they are or where they were. Maybe they were just hiding like Elijah in a cave and being quiet, so they wouldn't be killed. Um, from Second Kings, we read this, from Second Kings 12. King Jeroboam asked advice. He, he asked his elders, what shall I do to bring the country together? And then he made two calves of gold and said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is when I first came into contact with this idea of the remnant. And you could see that natural, carnal Israel was completely pagan. They were a de facto pagan nation. Now, that's important as we get into Romans 9 in this section. From that time on, Israel, the northern kingdom, became that pagan nation. It was to them that Hosea was sent. And note the significance, friends. It could be argued that Paul took Hosea's words out of context because he was speaking to apostate Jews, not to Gentiles. There was no Gentiles in the conversation. And you know, the higher critics, do you know who the higher critics of? Higher criticism is, for lack of a better term, I would just call it liberal theology. It came out of the late 1800s. A man named Julius Wellhausen headed it up, among other names that you may or may not know. And it was this idea that the Bible's not the Word of God. It's just a collection of ancient myths like any other. But we look at it because it's such a complete collection. Some strange reason it's intact. Right? And they don't take the word of God really very seriously. So what they're saying is if Hosea was inspired by God to write these words and Paul was inspired by God to quote Hosea, but he doesn't quote him directly. And I'll show you what the difference is. Right. But he quotes him differently and applies it differently that, well, the Apostle Paul couldn't be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, could he? If Hosea was. Now, I would argue to you that that only proves more that the Apostle Paul was under the influence of the Holy Spirit because he's telling us what the true spirit of the prophecy was. There's a couple of things we have to know about ancient prophecies. Very often in the New Testament, someone will quote a prophecy of old and not do it word for word. And they'll give it an application that the ancients would never have suspected. In other words, an apostle is greater and more deeply inspired than a prophet. That acceptable? I'll show you how this works. Now, I could have gone on and made this whole point to you without having noted all these inconsistencies and things, and we would have been perfectly happy with our understanding. But I made the judgment to alert you to the situation due to another of Hosea's famous commentaries. He wrote the word of God that says, My people perish for lack of knowledge. 
I wouldn't want you to be in a discussion about this section and someone say, you know, Paul didn't quote exactly. I wouldn't want you to be taken by surprise. My people perish for lack of knowledge. Now, you've probably heard that said. You may have even uttered it yourself, but consider the rest of the verse which says, because you've rejected knowledge, I'll also reject you. Friends, knowledge, the more you have, the better. Knowledge is the friend of the people of God. Ignorance is the enemy. And ignorance is a powerful enemy. It's ignorance that leads us to death and hell. It's knowledge that leads us to life and freedom and truth. Recall the curse uttered to the Thessalonians. Those who perish do so because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. No, the truth frees us. It's good to know the whole story. I should tell you there are several places in the New Testament where prophecies are paraphrased rather than quoted verbatim, and they're applied in what may seem unlikely or unwarranted ways. This tactic of the New Testament writers has been criticized by the so-called higher critics, and they impugn the integrity of Paul as not only a poor scholar, but a deceiver who uses the word of God to promote his own opinions. And they say Paul is just giving us an opinion here. Certainly there were Jews of that time who would have said so. So how do I reconcile this? I'll simply say to you that the Apostle's freedom with the text is also a testament of his own personal inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is as inspired as were those who penned the quoted verses in the first place. And he's being led to disclose more from certain ancient prophecies than the original prophet knew was in there. I've said to you often, I wonder when a prophet gives a prophecy that's not going to take place for a thousand years, if he has any idea how long it will be before that prophecy is fulfilled. I always wonder, how much does the prophet really know? Or is he just a voice and a pen for truth? In some ways, I think there's a blend of that. Certainly the prophet knows something about what he's saying will be fulfilled, but he doesn't know the fullness of it. But in New Testament times, we have a prophet who shows us the fullness of the prophecy. Another point of understanding is that certain prophecies of Scripture have more than one application. And it takes a man like Paul or Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, to lead us to the deeper meaning. Suffice it to say that there is an immediate meaning of prophecy and there's a remote meaning. For example, Paul was teaching on the need to compensate pastors. And he used the law of God from Exodus. Do not muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain. And I'm not taking it personally that he's calling me an ox. Do not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. And then Paul asks to the Corinthians, is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. For those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. He's making the point that you should pay your preachers. They're living to preach, and they ought to make a living from preaching. But he takes something that was meant for the humane treatment of oxen, and he uses it for responsible treatment of our pastors. It didn't have any 
inclination to go that way in the original. You understand what I'm saying? He unfolds the deeper meaning of it. Another example has been noted also comes from Hosea. He writes of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, who else said that? Matthew said that in his gospel in chapter 2. Matthew said, when Joseph arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed from Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I will call my son. When Hosea said it, he was referring to Moses. When Matthew said it, he applied it to Jesus. Matthew knew, as we do, that Hosea did not have this incident in mind when he wrote. But under the inspiration of God, he saw a double meaning in the words. And so a past as well as a future fulfillment. You see how that works? So don't be dismayed when someone says, well, Paul says he's quoting, but he didn't really quote. And so by referring to Hosea's statement with regard to apostate Jews, Paul extrapolates And applies the verse to unsuspecting Gentiles. Friends, Gentiles were no more pagan than calf worshippers. Jew or not Jew. And they were people with no interest in the things of God. He thus becomes the great apostle to the Gentile world. He sees the fulfillment in in latter times of of what the prophet meant to mean in former times. There's another aspect of Paul's reference to the prophet Hosea that would have added emphasis to his treatment of the fact that the gospel is an invitation to Gentiles. Do you remember the story of Hosea? It's very colorful. I I would urge you to go read it. It's a little colorful. It's a little disturbing. Hosea became one of God's most striking object lessons. He wasn't told to visit a potter. He wasn't told to eat a scroll. He was told to marry a whore. Did you hear this? He was to marry a wife who became a whore. She defiles herself with many lovers. Eventually, she becomes a slave, and she leaves her husband for many lovers, and God commands Hosea to what? Buy her back, which is what? Redeem her. His whole life is a picture of of God's relationship with Israel and of a Savior redeeming her back. So he purchases back his adulterous wife, it says, from the marketplace, for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half omers of barley. In other words, they had a little money to go home and buy some meat. And... um They apparently had some barley on hand so they could at least go home and make some loaves. So the prophet is mysteriously called to live out the whole redemption plan of God toward his people. So that's Hosea. And this apostle extends the price of redemption to the Gentile world. To the Ephesians, he writes of this very thing. That at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise. Look, Israel was the one chosen to carry those great things. Gentiles had no access to those things. Those are the pathways to the mind and understanding of God. He said, you have no hope and without God in the world. But now, 
in Christ Jesus. You who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has made both one, broken down the middle wall of separation, abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of, com- of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in him one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that it might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, both the Jewish world and the Gentile world. They took down the separation between them, made them both one body by the blood of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So this is Paul's continual teaching throughout his epistles. Again to the Ephesians. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so this beloved apostle magnifies the promise of God to Hosea who said this, And they shall say, you are my God. And Paul renders it this way. There they shall be called sons of the living God. And I say he has the complete authority to do that. I've always held that the New Testament is the only reliable, best exegesis of the Old Testament. And the apostles have been sent to magnify and clarify the promises of God through the prophets. And so we should magnify the authority of the apostles even over the prophets. They saw the double or greater meaning in the ancient prophecies. For the Lord clearly delineates the progression of authority. He gave some to be apostles and then some prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And it goes down the line. But they're all for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body body of Christ. So let's not think of Christianity as mere forgiveness of sins. Rather, we've been transformed into something not seen before. We're surely forgiven, but our relationship to Christ comes with far more extensive promises than that. That's the beginning. Forgiveness is a necessary and a glorious beginning, but God extending his love to the Gentile world was earth-shattering news then, and it really should be now. We're forgiven, but even more importantly, we are changed. You see, we've become new creatures in Christ. What the apostle is teaching is that the blood of Christ did not simply cover the sins of the faithful. Rather, it transformed them. We're something that we were not before. We're a new creature created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's not just busy electing some and rejecting others. He's creating for himself a whole new race of people. A whole new creature category, if you will. Peter called us partakers of the divine nature. And so again to the Ephesians, Paul writes, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. Jew and Gentile and Jesus Christ. One new body of new creatures. That he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And I'll end with John's words on the subject. Behold what manner of the love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Father, in Jesus' name, this morning we pray and I ask that you apply the teaching of this, your holy word, to our hearts. That we might be edified. That we might have great discerning gifts of how to use your word wisely. And to the benefit of all those who would believe in Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.